what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Two types of content are dominating my Instagram and TikTok feeds right now. The first type features users talking about different personality and developmental conditions. The second category is all about personality types. Now, I'm sure some of the prevalence of this content can be explained away because of my interest in both of those topics. Platforms are naturally going to surface more of that content for me because I spend time engaging with it. But it's also obvious that others are just as, if not more, interested in this content as I am. People are Instagram or TikTok famous because of how clearly or cleverly they communicate information about the Myers-Briggs system, ADHD, the Enneagram, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, the human design framework, or borderline personality disorder. You can easily find accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers that focus on a wide variety of conditions and types. And you know what? I am here for it. And I'm super curious how the quest for self-knowledge became big business on social media and beyond. At the end of the day, I guess we all just want to know, who am I? Well, I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This is the fourth episode in the Self-Help LLC series. This series is all about the business and politics of self-help, how it operates, why we're so attracted to it, and how we might think about personal growth in new ways. The series also poses a core question. Are we all in the self-help business now? In this episode, we're talking about the business of self-knowledge, specifically why personality typing on social media has become so popular. You're going to hear from Steph Baron Hall, who's the founder of Nine Types Co., a coaching and consulting business that leverages the Enneagram to help people communicate better. Nine Types Co. is also a wildly popular Instagram account with over 300,000 followers. Who am I? In my book, I devote a whole chapter to this question, inspired by an episode of Hurry Slowly, in which Jocelyn K. Gly poses the question, who am I without the doing? Now, when I first encountered this question, I assumed I was trying to uncover my core essential self, my true identity, the nut of who I am without the pressures of the outside world. But the more I explored the question, the less it seemed like I could uncover that essential self. Well, I'm in good company when it comes to doubt about my true, most authentic identity, Existentialist philosophers started to come to this conclusion almost a hundred years ago. They argue that there isn't some pre-established essence inside of each of us. There isn't a who I am 
underneath layers of dust and culture and lived experience. Sky Cleary, in her new book about the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir, explains it like this, quote, To become authentic means to create our own essence. It's the creation that is vital here. We don't discover ourselves. We make ourselves. Now, one way to see all the content about personality types and conditions is as a response to the yearning for an essential who I am. But another way to see it is that it helps us to identify ourselves at this point in time and learn more about who we want to become, about who we want to make ourselves. This content also helps us see others as they are and as they might want to become. While biases certainly exist, a system like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram is purposefully ambivalent about any hierarchy when it comes to types. My three is not better or worse than my husband's nine. My INTP is not better or worse than his ENFJ. But knowing that he's a nine and an ENFJ helps make sense of our differences and remember that he will make different choices than I do. Knowing that I'm autistic and he's decidedly not helps us navigate misunderstandings. This awareness helps me stay mindful of our intersubjectivity. Intersubjectivity is what Beauvoir calls mutual recognition and respect for another's freedom. Cleary explains that the choices that make our own most authentic selves are not part of a selfish, inward-only quest. Instead, existential freedom and authenticity come with responsibility. We share the same human condition, she writes. The Enneagram is a system for understanding one piece of our shared human condition, specifically The system addresses what motivates us and, in turn, how we communicate or relate with others because of how we're motivated. For instance, as a type 3, I'm motivated by a quest for significance. I want to be useful, valuable, and even distinguished in the fields that are important to me. Now, within that motivation, I have a deep fear of being worthless and undeserving. On the other hand, I know my husband, as a nine, is motivated by a desire for peace and stability. He prefers to avoid conflict and so ends up being very agreeable, sometimes in really self-destructive ways. So what the Enneagram is not offering is a picture of my essential self. In fact, it offers pathways for healthy growth and shows how stress can manifest in action. It's a system with existential freedom and authentic change built into it, at least in my own understanding. Now, I'm not an Enneagram evangelist, and I'm not unaware of the challenges with any personality typing system. But I do appreciate the wider range it gives us for understanding ourselves and others. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of sitting down with Steph Barenhall, the founder of Nine Types Co., to talk about the Enneagram, self-help content on social media, and the business of personality types. 
First, I asked how she got interested in the Enneagram in the first place. I have always been fascinated by personalities. Even when I was a kid, I remember having a book that had like, oh, if your favorite color is X, then this means this about your personality. And that inspired me to study psychology in my undergrad. And I really wanted to become a psychologist, but quickly I was like, oh no, school's expensive. (laughs) So, um, you know, not knowing what I know now, which is really different paths of funding education, but the Enneagram specifically was something that my husband actually brought up. He had listened to a podcast and we just kind of started talking about it together. But like with anything, especially with personality things, I dove headlong into it once I really got into it. Steph's initial personal fascination quickly turned into a business idea. Previously, I'd actually been running a wedding florals business. So I had a full-time job and I had my wedding business on the side and I was exhausted. You know, wedding florals are, it's very physical labor. It is very much uh, carrying you know, buckets of water and stuff like that. So I was exhausted and I I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do something like a digital product or something else like that next. And so I basically got bored for five seconds and, and got inspired actually by a podcast to create coffee mugs for each of the Enneagram types. At the time, this is over five years ago that the idea kind of came to me. At the time, I didn't know a lot about the Enneagram compared, obviously, to what I know now. And so I just hired a designer and we started creating these coffee mugs and started posting those on Instagram. So that's how I started my account. But quickly, I started recognizing that I was only really posting for the coffee mugs and they're very giftable, but they weren't really like educational or anything. And I quickly realized, you know, oh, when I actually post about the Enneagram tool, and share those thoughts. That's what people really like and engage with. So I kind of pivoted at that point later on to be more of the service education based. So June 2019, I was working a full-time job. I was in grad school and I was running my Instagram account. And I was like, again, hit you here in my story. There's a lot of these moments of just hitting these moments of burnout. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just need a break. So I posted a question sticker and I said, how do you find rest? Like, what does rest look like for you? And the response is, I was like, oh, actually, I can pull some really strong themes from each of these types. So I created this post called Nine Types of Rest, and I just threw it on a graphic, posted it, walked away. What happens when you see a post that reveals something about you that you want others to see too? Well, you share it. This thing went viral. Like two months later, Sophia Bush posted it on her Instagram. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my word. Of course, uncredited though. Here's the the thing is that it went viral on like Pinterest. It was before I started putting any sort of watermark on my post or anything. Mm -hmm. So it went on Pinterest and like all these different spaces. And so all these different people started finding it and and reposting it. Um, Like Jay Shetty, for example, reposted it. And it's circulated significantly since then which is really interesting because it was just such a a, a blip almost. But I think it really took off in a a way that I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something to this, you know, posting graphics sort of thing. It might be hard to believe now, but posting graphics on Instagram used to be kind of schlocky. It just wasn't what the cool kids were doing. 
was all selfies and photo shoots and, and maybe some candid snaps for a bit of authenticity. When I started, posting graphics was not how people did things on Instagram. And even a year into my account, after I'd grown over 100,000 followers, a social media marketing friend was like, this shouldn't work. Like, I don't know why this works because it shouldn't. The algorithm is not supposed to like this. It's supposed to like photos. And, but it, it does. And and now we go on Instagram and it's all graphics, right? So there were a few different things, but I think I always really focused on not just posting fun stuff about the Enneagram, but also posting things with a lot of depth to them. And in around August 2019, I posted about the Enneagram and communication. I was getting a master's degree in communication at the time, so it was a natural overlay and my following doubled. And then a month later, I posted another series of lists like that and my following doubled again. And so I was like, oh, this is the thing. This is the way that people want to consume this content and this is how I can grow this account. Now, when we talk about business, that's a different story. I totally agree with your social media marketing friend at the time. Like, this should not have worked. And yet, this is completely where the platform has gone. And not only that, you know, five years ago, three years ago, maybe even, I wouldn't have followed an account like yours. I just wanted to see photos. But now they're really the only kind of accounts that I enjoy looking at because I do like the way that the information is provided visually. I think it creates a really interesting medium for learning. So today, the kind of content that you're posting seems very algorithm friendly, whether it's the carousels or it's reels or it's you know, snippets from podcast episodes. And on top of that, I think it seems that personality type content is especially algorithm friendly because it really speaks to our individual selves. And I'm I'm curious how the algorithm in big air quotes has influenced you over the last few years? How does it influence what you post, what you think about? Is it something that's influenced you and the content that you create? It definitely is something that has influenced me. And I think early on, I was just really good at noticing that. I will say that's like one of the things, a lot of this has felt a little bit accidental, but the thing that's been always strategic is being able to understand what people want, what people will engage with, and being able to predict that really well. And also being able to predict what questions will people have about this content and how can I fill in the gaps? So that's fantastic for creating great educational content. That's not so good for building a business, right? Because what we see and, and what I see continually is if I'm asking you to get off the app, if I'm asking you to buy something from me or to pay me or anything, that automatically is not going to get that same level of interest or attraction or anything. And it's been a really interesting and, and sort of tricky thing to to think, okay, am I going to go for numbers? Am I going to go for low price, high numbers? Or am I going to go for this is all free, but to work with me, you have to pay this high dollar amount, you know, so and and working through that. So I think the algorithm, now we see it as something that likes personality stuff. And again, because Instagram has said, we want saves and we want shares, right? Well, sharing a graphic to your stories that tells people here's a blueprint of how to talk with me. People love that. Like I love that, you know? And I think that's why it's very algorithm friendly. Whereas 
things like photos are not going to get shared in the same exact way. And so I think that's where things have changed and the algorithm is, is really different now. Personality types are certainly having an algorithmic moment. But corporations and entrepreneurs are also paying big bucks to learn more about their teams. Personality typing is a sort of natural extension of our ongoing task of labeling, quantifying, and sorting data. And while any sorting mechanism brings with it the potential for bias, getting to know yourself and others through this kind of shorthand can also offer ways to communicate better and approach teamwork with more emotional intelligence. Personalities have always been interesting to a specific subset of people. And even when I was younger, I was one of those people who was just so fascinated by it and people looked like it looked at me like I had three heads or something like, why are you so obsessed with this? But I just think it's so interesting to understand how other people tick, how other people operate. But I think one of the things that I've seen, especially over the last couple of years in doing a lot of work with organizations and with teams, I've just seen so many more organizations that historically maybe wouldn't have invested in their employees in this way are kind of tapping into this emotional intelligence thing. They're tapping into this self-awareness thing. They're tapping into a sense of, oh, actually this holistic whole person approach to professional development is what brings sustainability. And sure, they can be thinking about their bottom line when they do it, but it's still going to drive some of those conversations. And obviously, emotional intelligence has been around now for 30 years in in terms of like the, the terminology. But I just have seen it so much in the last few years where people are starting to recognize that that's what they want. And I think millennials especially are like, oh, wait, we graduated high school, we graduated college in the midst of a recession, and I'm not going to bust my ass for this company if I'm going to get laid off in two years. And so we're seeing these people who have like this different perspective and want more. They're really asking for more. Like if I'm going to give you my entire life and I also have to be the home manager and and do all these different things and, and do all of this domestic labor as well, I need something more from it and I need to feel connected to that. Creating content that naturally goes viral has its upsides, but it also has some serious downsides. I wanted to know how Steph dealt with the less pleasant side of the business of personality types. Year over year, my account has is like 0% growth, right? So, or, and maybe actually slightly negative. And unfortunately, I think part of what comes with this whole social media thing is that you do face a lot of backlash and you get more feedback than anyone is really made to experience. And I recognize that actually maybe had some PTSD um, because of some of the threats and things like that, that I received early 2021. And so basically all of 2021, I was like one foot in, one foot out on Instagram. I would go months without posting and, and delete the app and just like not even be there. It was just too difficult. And I think I have like even just recognizing, oh, this is how this impacted me and being able to heal from it has enabled me to go back and go and connect with the people who I'm there for, um, the people who I really love working with and talking with and and kind of healing in that sense. So 
I think that there's that factor in terms of lead generation. I also think that there are so many people, I talk to people all the time who are like, oh yeah, we had just a random coworker teach the Enneagram at work. And that's fine. Like a lot of people get their start that way. But what I I hear happen also is a lot of like things like, oh, they said they are, you're, you can only get a promotion if you're a three, for example. And hearing some like really bad stuff happening And just because people think that they know enough to teach it and they just don't, and that's fine. But I do find that there are Enneagram lovers out there who think that they know enough to work with other people, to coach other people, to teach other people. And the reality is that they haven't maybe spent enough time with the tool itself to understand some of the nuances to make it actually helpful rather than harmful in those different spheres. I know lots of people, myself included, fear disingenuous critique on social media. Well, critique isn't even the right word. Trolling, threats, hostility. The writer Melissa Phoebos recently shared that for her writing students, one of the biggest hurdles to overcome is writing for the bad faith reader. In other words, her students are writing first drafts thinking about what some disinterested party is going to say about their work on Twitter or in the comments section. Now, I will admit that this is a big problem for me, too. It's one of the scariest parts of putting a book out into the world. The bigger your audience or the wider the reach of your work, the more likely you are to encounter those bad faith readers or viewers. And that leads to some difficult boundary setting. I've had to make some really tough choices. And I've also had to say, okay, now we're stepping back from this viral moment that lasted a few years and actually building a business. What is the business plan? What are the revenue generating systems? What are like the different, you know, quote unquote funnels I'm engaged with? Like, what am I actually building here? And how can I generate income from this business? I'm a three and threes are not the type that's like the inner critic type, but threes can still have this sense of I'm not doing enough um, all the time. And I think that leads to a lot of burnout. That leads to a lot of struggle. And I think it's really helped me in that sense. I think it's also really helped me in some really positive ways. Like I said, I can be really self-critical. So it's helped me to see, oh, I actually have these specific areas of expertise and I can use them and I can build upon them. And that's been really useful for me. One of the challenges of being a three in the space that I'm in is in general, I think I have a lot of money mindset things that I've been working through. And threes are kind of pegged as the shallow, just like all they want is money and success people. But that has never been me. Like I do want those things, but I'm not somebody who's going to go out and just be like, hey, pay me, pay me, pay me, you know. Um, And it's been really challenging to, to navigate that. Just this last week, I got a comment saying, of course, you're selling something, you're a three. And I was like, wait, no, I'm, I'm selling something because I'm a business owner. This is a business. I asked Steph what she's learned about herself teaching the Enneagram online. It's really building the skills of self-observation, building the skills of being able to notice in the moment, oh, I'm doing that thing again. And not being self-critical about it, but just noticing it and moving forward and kind of accepting it and going through the seasons of not having to be in quote unquote growth mode. And that's okay too. And making more space for those. So I think those are some of the things I've learned. 
I've had to use a lot of different tools to process it. So one is recognizing in myself, okay, why did that set me off? Like, why did that upset me? Why did that make me feel this one particular way? Is it because it's true? Is it because I think that about myself? Is it because I think about myself really differently from that? And then, so so kind of that framing, reminding myself that's one person's take, one person's comment. And if they're being so unkind, like being in their brain must be really difficult. So just kind of leaving that behind. And for a long time, I let it, I I let that like almost the central nervous system activation that would happen when I would see comments like that. I let that really rule me. But then I learned, okay, I have ADHD, rejection sensitivity is like a big thing. And learning those things about myself has been really helpful. And like, gosh, I could go on. (laughs) forever about this. Of course, it's one thing to be able to process the psychological and even physiological responses we have to visibility and critique. And it's another to have systems in place to deal with it. Steph has learned to set up those systems too. Also recognizing the people who follow me are going to like and comment within the first 24 hours. So after that period, I don't go to the comments. I also do have a VA who helps me with comments and DMs. Um, And that creates a a bit of a wall there as well. I think it's really sad that those really hateful people stand in the way of me connecting with my audience in the way that I really want to. And also at the end of the day, I can't connect with my audience if I am avoiding posting altogether, right? So it's kind of, it's really tricky. It's really difficult to navigate. It's, but it's really important as a three for me also to, to be like, that's not my value. My worth is not in the amount of recognition that I receive, Um, online. My worth is in just being a human being and existing in the world. And what matters more is how do I treat myself? How do I treat my family? How do I treat my partner? All these different things. And so kind of grounding back into that and being like, my life is actually in the real world. It's not online. That can help. Self-knowledge content goes viral because people want to share things that reveal interesting or unexpected things about their inner workings. I might share a meme that reveals some quirky autistic trait or evidence of my pervasive anxiety. You might share a meme that reveals how much of a people pleaser you are or how much you love following rules. But for as much as we reveal through sharing this type of content, it's only a tiny fraction of who we are, much less who we are becoming. We don't share to be seen as who we are. We share to be seen as who we hope others will believe us to be. Humans have always lived with some level of self-observation, as Steph calls it, based on who we think others think we are. But social media has taken things to a new level. Mickey McGee explains that the work of self-help has often taken the form of visualizing ourselves as if we were directing ourselves in a movie. We view our inner world by imagining how it might appear to others. As an autistic person, I do this constantly. It's part of the self-monitoring we call masking. As a woman, I learn to regularly take stock of how my appearance and demeanor might be perceived by men. People who hold other marginalized identities self-surveil to make sure they're not out of step with dominant culture in a way that might be dangerous to them. W.E.B. Du Bois called this 
double consciousness. With any form of marginalization or objectification comes the need to both know yourself and know who others believe you are. On Instagram, the double consciousness is quantified. We visualize ourselves as if we're starring in a movie because we're literally making videos starring ourselves. Self-monitoring becomes constant, invisible, uncompensated labor, and that impacts how we know ourselves. Sociologist Charles Horton Cooley dubbed this the looking glass self. We don't simply know ourselves. We know ourselves through our social interactions with others. Now, there's a lot we can know about ourselves through those interactions. It's been a constant topic of conversation in my household, I can assure you. And there's more to knowing ourselves and being known than any Instagram post, personality type system, or viral meme can reveal. Hopefully, that's kind of a no-brainer. But the challenges Steph has run into creating that kind of content show that we might be taking our looking glass selves more seriously than we'd like to think. My guess is that you're not in the viral personality type content business, but we're all a part of the ecosystem where that content thrives. Find out more about Steph Baron Hall at ninetypes.co or on Instagram at ninetypesco. You can also find Steph's podcast, Enneagram in Real Life, wherever you listen to What Works. Next week, we're venturing into the world of momfluencing with Sarah Peterson to see how the spectacle of motherhood is setting new expectations and building massive audiences. In some ways, of course, it's wonderful and valuable to learn about other people's experiences in the world, of course. But when motherhood is tied so directly to commerce and shopability, it gets really confusing really quickly. If you're excited about the Self-Help LLC series, you're going to love my new book. In What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting, I unpack the historical, psychological, and economic systems that impact the way we relate to goal setting and offer a radically different approach to growth and planning. Find What Works wherever books are sold. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.